Anyone know where the... Aha, there it is. So, back in Isaiah, if you are new, that's what we've been doing for the last few weeks, and we're continuing in the middle chunk of the section. But I want us to start at the very beginning, because it's a very good place. (laughs) So we are going to start at the very beginning. We're going to start with God's design and purpose right from the very beginning, because God created people male and female, to be in his image and in their community with one another to express something of his image, to be in relationship with him and each other and to steward the earth that God had created. And so we have this wonderful picture in the garden. Excuse me, I'm going to take my cardigan off. It's doing my head in. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so we have this wonderful picture of the garden where Adam and Eve walked in fellowship with God and everything was perfect. Everything in the world was perfect. Everything in their relationship was perfect. Everything in their relationship with the Lord Almighty was perfect. And then they went and ruined it all. (laughs) And we all have to live with the consequences of that, but we contribute to the consequences of that as well, don't we? Very, very early on, it all went wrong. But even in that very moment, God promised that one day it would be resolved. One day the serpent's head would be crushed and that there would be resolution and restoration to how things were meant to be. So let's move on a little while because a little while later God chooses Abram and he makes this covenant with Abram and he says, I'm now going to call you Abraham and I'm going to make you the father of nations, and I'm going to make you a great nation, and your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And Abraham looks at himself, and he looks at his wife and says, really? Really, you're going to do that? Have you not looked at us? Have you not studied your biology textbooks? You're going to make a great nation out of us? God says, I'm going to do that. But he makes this really strange covenant with Abraham, where they have to divide the, um, the sacrifice in two and put one on one side and one on the other side, and then this burning pot floats backwards and forwards. And God says in that covenant, even if you break the covenant, I never will. I never will. So most covenants had both parties contributing to it working. That seems reasonable, actually, doesn't it? In fact, sometimes one did more than the other, but both of them would contribute. But God says, you know what? Even when you break it, even when it's your responsibility to restore it, I will take responsibility. I will restore the covenant. I will make sure that it keeps going. So from you and your people, I'm going to build a nation. And he did, didn't he? Even though Abraham didn't trust him, even though Sarah didn't trust him, even though they messed up somewhat, God built a nation. 
I'm going to build a nation that demonstrates what it looks like to live in relationship with the Lord God Almighty so that my presence might be displayed among you. However, it didn't entirely work out like that either, did it? So here we have, for the rest of the story of the Old Testament, God raising up his servants, raising them up to speak his word, raising them up to lead his people, raising them up to point the people back to his original intention, which was that people should have a relationship with God Almighty. So we have the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then a little bit later, we have Moses and this, uh, leading them out of slavery in Egypt, and Joshua leading them into the promised land. And then we have the period of the judges, where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. But God, time and again, is raising people up. Some of them were a bit rubbish, but he raises them up to speak his word and point the people back. Then they said, we want a king. So he gives them a king. And there's Saul, and there's David, and there's Solomon. And they speak the word of the Lord, but they get it wrong too. And then the kingdom is divided, and the people are taken into exile. And we have the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Zephaniah, and Malachi, and all those guys, whose names you need to know when you get to heaven. And they speak the word of God. And they lead the people and they try to direct them back to God's original intention. And after the exile, they return under Ezra and Nehemiah. And the prophets still speak the word of the Lord. And it's in the middle of this long story, this big story, that we have the story of Isaiah. And I know we've said this to you every week so far, but that's because we trust that you are like us and therefore need to be told more than once. <laughs> the prophet of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord... And we're in this third section here, and this morning we're going to be thinking about the servant prophecies or the servant songs that are key aspects of these chapters that speak of pointing people back to God, his original intention. And so through these chapters, we have time and again this word, my servant, my servant. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning, primarily, my servant. Who is God's servant? They are the one through whom God's purposes are going to be accomplished. The one through whom God's purposes are going to be accomplished. So just remember that, please. So there are four servant songs. There's almost like five, but technically there's four. And so let's just have a read of them, shall we? I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. But just so you get an idea of the kind of things that God is saying to his servants. So I expect the rustling of pages or the scrolling of things that's not Facebook. <laughs> oh, that was a bit too much of a response. <laughs> Unless you're writing the verses on Facebook, which I probably could cope. So Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. We'll read the rest of it later. Isaiah chapter 49. There's a sort of a one also in 44. 49 and verse 1, 
Listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I've labored to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. And if you turn over to chapter 50, in chapter 4, the sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue. Listen, there's a bit of a change of tone here. To know the word that sustains the weary, he wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame. And then if you turn over... I'm not going to read the rest of it, but chapter 52, the end of, into chapter 53, which are those very familiar words, who has believed our message, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And Phil's going to look at that specifically next week. So those are the servant's songs. How will the servant act. Because there's some key things that are true of the servant in each of those songs. First of all, the servant will speak the word of their master. Speak, not shout. Speak. Speaking God's word, chapter 49, verse 2, 50, verse 4, and actually there's something really compelling about chapter 53, verse 7, that he is silent. Because up to that point, he is speaking the word of God. He speaks the word of the Lord. That's the role of the servant, to speak out the word of God. The second thing is that the servant will express the culture of their kingdom. The servant will express the culture of their kingdom. How many of you have watched a single World Cup match? <laughs> Not that many. Well, we won't need to finish early then. <laughs> For the three of you that want to watch the England game. <laughs> it's all right, Samuel. It's fine. I will. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether you saw on the BBC News, but um, early on this week, maybe Monday, um, there was an article about Japan. And uh, Japan had beaten Colombia. And at the end of the match, when the, all the officials went into the stadium, they were completely astounded because in the area where the Japanese supporters had been sitting during the match, it was totally immaculate. <laughs> Because the Japanese supporters had taken in their own bin bags and they had tidied up all their rubbish after them into their bin bags and taken it away. See, all nations should clearly be like that. When they were talked to about it, when they were asked about it, they just said, this is what we do. This is our culture. This is how we behave. It is not strange for us that we have done this. It's only strange to you because you don't do it. We are just expressing who we are. And that was the job of the servant, was to express the culture of the kingdom. It is just about who we are. It's just what we do. 
And the servant in Isaiah was one who was filled with the Spirit of God. In fact, the Spirit is mentioned more in Isaiah than any other Old Testament book. And the image of water often represents the Spirit as well. He was filled with the Spirit of God. When he encountered people, it says a bruised reed he will not break and a broken wick he will not put out. That's the culture of the kingdom. That when, humanly speaking, you find a reed, we're just talking a reed, by the way, a bit of grass, that's bent over. You you don't worry about it, do you? You just stamp on it. You don't think any more about it. It's just a broken bit of grass. It doesn't matter. But this servant takes this broken reed and puts it back up again, binds it, straightens it. Ridiculous. He goes to a wig that is just about to go out, that's got that last glimmer, flicker. I mean, they didn't have electricity, did they? There were wicks everywhere, candles, lights, torches. They went out all of the time. That's what happens. The wax run out, they run out. He says, let me fan you back into flame again. I'm not going to put you out. I'm going to fan you into flame This is the culture of the kingdom. This is a culture of righteousness and justice. If we turn back to chapter 42 again. And uh, from verse 6, this is actually my baptism verse, so I love this passage. It says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. This is the culture of the kingdom. Zedekiah had been blinded by the Babylonians as they'd come in to take over Judah. People have been put in prison. They were captives in the land. This is physically true. But of course, it's also metaphorically true as well that they could not see the glory of God. They were not free in the way that God wanted them to be. But the culture of the kingdom is of righteousness and justice. And that's how the servant would act. The servant would also act as a signpost to the Lord for the, for the other nations, 42, 7, 49, 6, 52, verse 14. He was to be a signpost to the nations that here was the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the Lord Almighty. Even from this point, the purpose was that all the nations would worship him. And he was to be a signpost to the nations. And the servant will sacrifice his own well-being for the king and the kingdom. Did you notice the change of tone in chapter 50, that third song? They pulled out his beard. Well, I don't have a beard, obviously, but it doesn't sound like a very pleasant thing to have happen to you. They spat in his face. They beat him on the back. They accused him. Chapter 53, he was despised and rejected. Couldn't even recognize him. He suffered. He was punished. The servant will sacrifice his own well-being for the king and his kingdom. So let's just take a closer look for a moment at Isaiah 42 and 43. Isaiah 42, 1 to 7 is that first servant song, verse 1 to 9, really. God commissions them to be everything he needs them to be in this context. But their response in the rest of chapter 42 is not, yes, Lord, here I am, send me. It's like, oh, 
We're not sure about that. We feel anxious about it. We're a bit distracted by all the other gods around us and by the situation we find ourselves in. Actually, frankly, we can't be bothered. We don't want to do what you've asked us to do. And that's where the people of God find themselves. God has given them this amazing commission, but then they don't really want to do it. Like, that doesn't sound familiar at all, really, does it? But you know what? God comes in chapter 43, and he gives his servant amazing affirmation. And we're not going to spend a long time on this, but just to mention these things in the context. First of all, he says to them these really, really important words. Fear not. How often do we need to hear that? I mean, what is it? It's in the Bible 365 times or something. Maybe it's 367 because I've got a feeling it's one for each day of the year and a spare one. (laughs) Because we're often anxious, we're often concerned, we're often bewildered, we're often distracted. We often don't want to do what God calls us to do. But he says, fear not, fear not. And then he goes on to say, you are my witnesses. You are my witnesses. There is no plan B. You are the servant. You are my witnesses. I haven't given up on you because... Back at the beginning, I promised that I wouldn't. You are my witnesses. Verse 14 and 15, he reminds them, I am the Lord, I am the King. You're overwhelmed by the leaders, the rulers, the gods of Babylon, but I am the Lord. I am the King. I am the overcomer of Babylon. Don't forget that. And he says to them these very familiar words, I am doing a new thing. You know, they were in Babylon, looking across the desert, with all its miles, miles of desertness, occupied by all sorts of tribes and local leaders. And they were going, we're never going back. It's too far. The journey's too long. The opposition is too harsh. And so they look back to the exodus, to the good old days of what God had done. God says to them, don't focus on that because I'm doing something new. I'm going to make your way through the desert. I'm going to get you back. Stop worrying. He says, even though your worship has not been what I would have wanted, I will deal with your sin. I will. And in chapter 44, verses 1 to 5, I'm going to put my spirit on you. I'm going to restore you. I am going to give you hope again. And there's this constant vision of hope, of repurposing, of motivation, of bringing confidence to them. But you know what? It doesn't go very well again. Because it's this constant roller coaster for God with his people. They are constantly disappointing him with their reaction. They don't believe what he says. They don't take on board the confidence that he's trying to instill in them. And there's this constant roller coaster of their experience with God. They go off track. They follow other gods. They disappoint him. They don't trust him. They don't fulfill their calling. God says to them, remember how ridiculous the Babylonians are. There's quite a lot of jokes in Isaiah. I don't know if you noticed that or not. He says, remember how ridiculous they are. He says, they get a pile of wood, they take half of it, and they set it on fire, and they cook the tea over it. They get the other half, and then they carve an idol, and they put it there, and they worship it. 
And because it's a bit wibbly-wobbly, they have to nail it to the floor before they worship it. So get over yourselves. I am the Lord God. Trust me. And he promises, promises, promises to fulfill his promise to them. He says he's the one who foils the signs of false prophets, who makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers. I'm going to do it. And then after all of that, because that's just the introduction. The introduction's a lot longer than the sermon, so it's fine. After all that, there is this shocking news. I don't know if you noticed that it was shocking. There's this shocking news. He mentions that he's going to take Cyrus to be his shepherd. Shepherd is just a metaphor for a ruler or leader at that point, under God's authority. But then, chapter 45, verse 1. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of. See, I don't know if we hear it, that it's shocking. But what he's actually saying this is, this is what the Lord Almighty, Yahweh, says to his Mashiach, Messiah. This is what God is saying to his Messiah, Cyrus, the Persian king. Whoa. Okay, that's not right. Because isn't the Messiah coming from the Jewish people? So what's happening has God given up on them? Has he chosen to go to a different nation to choose a different Messiah? But it's God's approach, isn't it? To do something a bit outrageous. Very outrageous, in fact. To take the foreign king and use him as the servant. What is the servant? The one who accomplishes the purposes of God. This is the extent of the rule of Cyrus the great. It is all the colored in bits apart from the blue, which is the sea. <laughs> just mention that. And it's huge. I mean, just look at it. It's huge. It's all the way through Turkey, right down across Egypt, all the Middle East, all the way to the Indus River. It's huge. And Cyrus conquered that all at slightly different times, and you can see the dates on there. Who is Cyrus? Well, they didn't have Wikipedia in that day, but they did have Cyropedia. Generally, they did. They had Cyropedia. Cyropedia was written by the Greek historian Xenophon. It means the education of Cyrus. So we have Cyropedia on the one hand, and we have the scroll of Isaiah on the other hand. The major differences between Xenophon and Isaiah's account are this. Xenophon wrote his account 100 years after Cyrus had died. Isaiah wrote his account around 100 years before Cyrus was born. That's quite a significant difference. Now, before you accuse Isaiah of being too prophetic... Note to self, he was a prophet. It's a little bit like accusing someone who's just been appointed and just been given an Oscar of being too convincing an actor. That's their job. Xenophon's emphasis was on the strength and the wisdom of Cyrus. He wanted to set up the Persian Empire as a kind of type for the Greek 
Empire. So he was trying to make Cyrus seem amazing. Isaiah, on the other hand, emphasizes the weakness and folly of Cyrus and that God will use him in spite of. So chapter 44, verse 28, says that God chose him to be a shepherd, to be a ruler. The Greek historian Herodotus said that Cyrus was the child of humble of a humble cattle herder from a place called Anshan. It was a kingdom that was so small that it had been totally gobbled up by the Medes, the empire of the Medes. Expecting someone from Anshan to create a mighty empire was a little bit like expecting Luxembourg to win the World Cup. It just wasn't going to happen. But then there are those little echoes of expecting a man from Nazareth to be the Messiah of the world, He was a pagan idolater. And God said a lot of things about that so far in Isaiah, hasn't he? He worshipped idols. His name was derived from the Persian sun god, Kor. But God can take anyone, anyone, and use them for his purposes. Cyrus was the kind of guy who hedged his bets. That's probably why he did well. He pacified every god in the empire. You can see it on the edict, which is the Cyrus Cylinder, which is in the British Museum, which I saw, in fact, last week, because I happened to be traveling through the British Museum on my way to King's Cross Station. You can actually see it. You can read it. He pacified the gods. He mentions the gods of Babylon and says, well, they can still worship their gods, and we'll worship the gods of Persia, but if you could try and get the gods of Babylon to put in a good word for me, that would be great. He does that as well when he sends the people back to Israel. He says, build your temple, but make sure that you pray for me to your God, and we'll carry on praying to our gods. He hedges his bets. And it says in chapter 45 that God will take him by the right hand. You know, that's the promise that God has given to his servant through Isaiah so far already, that he'll take them by the right hand. Now God is saying that to Cyrus, this pagan king, ruler of the Persian Empire. God, Yahweh, will be his strength. He is just an item in God's toolbox. His name may come from the sun god, but his power is from the true gods. He will succeed because God is proving that he can shape the course of history through anyone. And what God says comes true. So who is the servant in Isaiah? Are you still with me? (laughs) Who is the servant in Isaiah? Well, is it Israel? They were kind of the first servant, weren't they? God's intended servant for the world was the people of Israel. But uh, they didn't do so well. So was it Isaiah? Because it actually changes between the singular and the plural in the Hebrew in Isaiah. So it can actually be both the whole people or Isaiah. Was he the servant of God. Is it the Jewish people? Now, this one raises super strong opinions, which I'm not in any manner going to address this morning. But is it the Jewish people? Since the Balfour Declaration of 1917 and the uh, independent state of Israel in 1948, people have thought strongly that this is about the Jewish people. And there is enough in here to imply that we need to take that at least a bit seriously. But there's also stuff in Romans that talks about all the people of God being grafted in together. So is it the Jewish people? 
But as the songs go on in Isaiah, you have this ever-increasing sense that Isaiah and Israel and the Jewish people throughout the generations will never fully accomplish the mission of God. And there's this messianic tone that creeps in. Do you remember that Jesus refers more to Isaiah, the Gospels do, than any other book apart from Psalms. And Paul refers more to Isaiah than any other Old Testament. But there's this messianic tone that the fulfillment will only be in Jesus. Is he the servant of God? Take a look. Who do you see? Who would you see in the mirror? Is it you? Is it us? Are we the servant of the Lord? Maybe it's all of those things. Because with prophecy, there's always this layering, this layering fulfillment. And God's word is living and active in every time and place and generation. He is always speaking. So let's take a look in the mirror and ask that question again. How will the servant act? The servant will speak the words of their master. Is that what we do? Do we speak the words of our master? Doesn't necessarily mean you need to quote chapters and verse. That's not always the most helpful thing. But are the kind of things you speak consistent with the word of God? Do you speak and not shout? Is our tone and our words and the things we communicate individually and as a church the kind of things that God would want to be saying to people because servant speaks his words? Oh, sorry. Do we express the culture of the kingdom? A kingdom where bruised reeds are not trampled on, where Flickering wicks are not extinguished. A kingdom of righteousness and of justice. You know, I think that we do. We could always do more. You know, in the UK, the church is the greatest provider of youth and children's care outside of formal education. That's an expression of the kingdom. It's a lot of churches that are providing food banks and debt centers. That's an expression of the kingdom. When a church decides to set up a club to make lunch for children who in the holidays would otherwise go hungry, that's an expression of the kingdom. When we sit or befriend older people who feel isolated, that's an expression of the kingdom. When we have a place where it's okay to not be okay. That's an expression of the kingdom. When we fight the cause of the refugee, that's an expression of the kingdom. When we speak to our MP about believers who are being persecuted in nations across the world, that's an expression of the kingdom. When we love one another, when we care for one another, when we encourage each other, when we forgive each other, when we choose not to be offended with one another, that's an expression of the kingdom. That's the role of the servant, to express the culture of the kingdom. So when people see us, me, us, 
the church, do they see the kingdom? We act as a signpost to the Lord for our community. I think we've done that a little bit more recently, which is good. The church acts as a signpost to the nations for the kingdom. We haven't always done that very well. In fact, we've sometimes done it very poorly. Very poorly. People have not wanted to be a part of the kingdom that we have been signposting. And we are called to sacrifice our own well-being for the king and his kingdom. Maybe that's time. Maybe it's our holiday. Maybe it's our resources. Maybe it's our well-being, our comfort. Many people across the globe today, they are having their beards pulled out. They are being spat on. They are being beaten on their backs. They are being imprisoned. They are being killed because they are servants of the king. There will always be a cost to being a servant of the king. And so just in closing, the overall message to God's people is this, that God's vision is continually affirmed. That's really a good thing because the, ch- the people of God at that point were going through some pretty dark places. The people of God throughout history have been through some desperately dark places. But the church has virtually been extinguished. And yet God says, I will never give up. I still have vision for you. God never lets go. He never forgets his people. Just after chapter 45, there's this brilliant image where God talks about the Babylonians and he says, they're going to be sent out of the land because the Persians are coming. And he said, they're going to run out of the land and they're going to be packing their bags and they're going to be picking up their idols and shoving them in their bags and carrying them. What kind of a God do you need to carry? He says, I carry you. I carry you. You don't carry me because that's not what gods are like. Only small G ones. I carry you. He says, even if a mother should forget her child, which is clearly not something that regularly occurs, I will never forget you. You are written on the palms of my hands. God will accomplish his purposes. They will never be thwarted. But in that, there is no room for complacency. You know, some of the people of Israel did not go home. They were happy where they were. They were complacent. Stuff was good. They didn't go home. There's no room for self-satisfaction, or we're doing quite well here, or pride. God continually challenges them about who they are. And he is the God of surprises because he is God. If we don't fulfill his calling, who will he use? If we don't fulfill his calling, who will he use? Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. There have been periods of history where we have not been those things. And God has used other agencies, other people. It's my challenge thinking about this in the middle of the night last night, as you do. I thought, if we don't do that next door, who will? 
If we don't provide a home for those who are not okay, who are known by labels and not by names, who feel isolated and alone, who need not just a food parcel, but the walkthrough of love and dignity and ongoing care. If we don't do that, who will? Because we are God's servant and he's calling us. And he is a God of surprises. So he raises people up and he puts them down again. So when he raises people up across our globe or in our nation or even in our town, we go, really? Cyrus, really? And our job is to pray for those people because God is accomplishing his purposes. You might not like them. I think there were many people that liked Cyrus particularly. But God says pray for them because he will accomplish his purposes in surprising ways. We are his servants. And if we don't obey him, he will.